Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are focusing on the theological work of Gregory of Nazianzus, sometimes known as Gregory Nazianzen, and sometimes simply Gregory the Theologian. He's that good. He's just the theologian. So anyway, we're sort of... Uh, been making a whirly gig tour through Trinitarian theology lately, and we'll be continuing that next time as well. Uh, Gregory himself is one of the three Cappadocian fathers, and uh, they were all hugely important in the developments and articulation of Orthodox Christian doctrine in the fourth century after Christ. Um, Dad, why did you want to focus, uh, before we get into the details about him, on Gregory of Nazianzus as opposed to, say, uh, his buddy Basil the Great, Basil the Great, or um, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who is the younger brother of Basil the Great. Yeah, um, you know, I had the great privilege in graduate school to study with the uh, scholar Richard Norris. and uh, Oh, I didn't I know immensely... that. You studied with him? Yeah. Oh, I can't believe all the secrets that come out on this show, Dad. We should talk more. <laughs> okay, go on. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. I never kept it from you. I just you never volunteered never it. Okay. Mentioned it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, he, he uh, I, I took his uh, course on the Cappadocian Fathers. Uh, and also, I greatly benefited from his original research on Theodore of Mopsuestia. But uh, in that course on the Cappadocians, of course, I was exposed to Basil and the two Gregories. And I just, you know, I, I just always kind of liked Gregory Nazianzus the most, you know, it's just a, (laughs) he just hit me the right way. Uh, I found Nyssa somewhat, sometimes a little bit too esoteric and speculative and Basel um, a little bit too, um, oh, I don't know what the right way to put it is, a little bit too ascetical and and heavenly minded. Um, Those are not big objections to either of them. They're they're all important, but Gregory always struck me as the as the theologian in the the manner that I that I like theologians. Mm. Yeah, they they definitely had distinct personalities. Basil was the politician. Gregory of Nyssa, to me, is the moralist. Um, he he wrote um, tragical things about how he blew it by getting married, so he couldn't consecrate his life to virginity like a true Christian should. And um, and uh, <laughs> Gregory of Nazianzus was clearly the retiring contemplative, uh, who was continually forced out into the public by his, uh, especially by by Basil, but others in his life, and hated it and was terrible at it. And his irritability comes through in his writing. Um, but you can tell this is a uh, a quiet man who has been forced well well beyond his comfort zone, but the stakes were too high to to keep silence. Um, I'll just mention that a, a, a year or two ago, I did a theology and a recipe on um, Basil the Great um, because of his name. Uh, we had a, a, there were three, three recipes for eggs that uh, each represented a Trinitarian heresy and then Basil the Great Pesto to go with them. So uh, that, that's why I focused on, on Basil there. But uh, so I'll put that, a link to that in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. But to hear, we are here today for Gregory. So let me just give a, an overview of his life. He was probably born around the year 330 in Cappadocia. That's in today's Turkey. Uh, no Turks there. 
at the time. Uh, he was part of a Christian family. And um, like I said, he definitely wanted to be more of the hermit type than the um, public figure type. Uh, but there's all sorts of like back and forth. Um, at, at, you know, the the Council of Nicaea has already taken place by the time he's born, which secures pretty much the divinity of the sun. And then by the time of Constantinople in 380, that's at the other end of his life, the divinity of the spirit is pretty much secure. But that's kind of the fight uh, in the course of his life is, is especially still still working out the ramifications of the divinity of the sun and still struggling to um, certify and validate the divinity of the spirit. And um, so, so his his buddy Basil got him involved in a struggle against one of the emperors, Valens, who was a semi-Aryan, not a full-blown Aryan. And folks, that's A R I A N. That means you know uh, the son is subsequent in time to the father, not A R Y A N, which is a racial um, def- debunked theory of uh, you know the Nazis. So, not that. Um, and he kind of like went around to various places where he was bishop. He got even transferred to Constantinople at one point, which is, you know, the big place. And um, it was there that he gave what became known as the five theological orations. There are five sermons, which are the major source of his Trinitarian theology. Though later on, he also wrote two letters to a pastor priest under his care, Cladonius, um, clarifying a few more the- uh, theological matters. Um, I just want to note the the version that I read is in this wonderful little series put out by St. Vladimir's Press. I don't know if they're still adding to it, but it's called the Popular Patristic Series. And um, it's l- short, very nicely formatted books of uh, section, like small bits of the Church Fathers in kind of digestible form. And so this one... It, Although it is a great collection, it's these five theological orations and the two letters to Clodonius, it has the absolute worst title for Gregory of Nazianzus's Trinitarian theology. Namely, it's entitled On God and Christ. What were they thinking oh, of? <laughs> yeah, I know. So anyway, don't be don't be dismayed by the title. It's a, a good way to uh, read Gregory of Nazianzus and uh, a great series if you want to read more Church Fathers. Well, thanks, Sarah. That, that's a pretty good overview um, of um, uh, his, you know, he. It's been commented that apart from the five theological orations, which were delivered in Constantinople during the trend, during the collapse of the semi-Aryan uh, regime of of Valens, the Emperor Valens, and the rise of uh, Theodosius, um, and the which was leading to the Council of Constantinople in 381. Apart from Gregory of Nazianzus's uh, famous intervention in those months there in Constantinople, no one would know him much about him. He would have been just a very obscure figure. And sure enough, as soon as he had accomplished his mission with the Council of Constantinople in 381, he found a way to go back to Nazi, Nazi the, his hometown and, and quietly get off the stage of world history. Yeah, yeah, which clearly he always wanted to do. Well, maybe it is a good argument um, overall for the value of taking the time and the um, contemplative silence to think and pray and discern. And, you know, when the Lord needs you, he'll call you up to the stage. And then when you're done, just quietly slip away. No need to hang on to the fame any longer. 
Yeah, and uh, contemplate, uh, pray, and study. The uh, that that was the other big theme uh, for for uh, Gregory of Nazianzus and to the pastors out there and the folks, uh, lay folks in congregations, your pastors need time for contemplation, prayer, and study. That's how they fill the tank. And uh, if you expect pastors, as you have a right to expect pastors, to be people who give of themselves sacrificially to the ministry of word and sacrament and to shepherd a congregation with the word and sacraments of Christ, you've got to grant them the time for contemplation or meditation, prayer, and study. Absolutely. This is also very deeply a part of the Lutheran tradition. Philip Melanchthon loved Gregory of Nazianzus. And there's an entire book by an author named H. Ashley Hall titled Philip Melanchthon and the Cappadocians, a subtitle, A Reception of Greek Patristic Sources in the 16th Century. Okay, Dad, now here's the part where I get to say, I know Ashley. He's a friend of mine. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Ha! You see? You see? I can keep secrets too, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was at the Luther Congress last summer, but I, I also I met him originally because he attended one of the Wittenberg seminars that I teach uh, every November. And yeah, he's a great, great scholar of, uh, of the Lutheran and patristic relationship and a lovely human being. Does he have a position somewhere? Uh, yeah, he's a, a pastor and also teaches at a university in Omaha, I think. He's definitely in Nebraska. Sorry, Ashley, I'm, I'm getting the details not quite right, but I think that's right. Okay. Well, uh, you'll have to signal him that we've mentioned him in this podcast. I'm sure his ears are burning already. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So he, I just, I lifted this quotation from Melanchthon uh, out of, uh, uh, um, I, no, this is actually from Gregory of Nazianzus, but this is why um, uh, Philip Melanchthon loved Greg- Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, this is Gregory speaking. We do not teach in an uncivilized way. We do not pelt our enemies with insults, which is what most people do, fighting not against argument, but against those who propose them. At times, too, they cover over the weaknesses of their reasoning with invective. But we try to show that fighting the war on Christ's behalf consists in fighting as Christ did, the meek one, the peacemaker, who sustains our weaknesses. We do not pursue peace to the detriment of truthful argument, making concessions to gain a reputation of fairness. We do not, in other words, pursue the good by doing evil, but we pursue peace through fighting by the rules, both with within both our own boundaries and the norms of the spirit, end quote. You can see why Philip Melanchthon loved Gregory Nazianzus. Yes, I, I always think of Melanchthon as also being a mild-mannered man who was continually forced into polemical positions. So, yeah, what I like about this is that it, it's both, um, it's, making the case for fiery debate that, that that actually really matters because the truth really matters so it's not a peace at all costs or harmony to, at all costs right. but at the same time it recognizes that for dispute not to be destructive for its own sake and uh, uh you know 
turn the whole ship over in the process. It has to follow rules. And, and that means also the self-control of the debaters in conforming themselves to you know, fair rules of exchange. And I, I like that he even adds that, but the norms of the spirit. You know, uh, wouldn't it be great if, if that, mo- you know, in a way that was kind of what was going on in, after the Vatican, Second Vatican Council in the whole series of, of doctrinal dialogues that evolved out of the 1960s. Um, this was this um, hermeneutic of charity, this attempt uh, uh, to uh, understand the concern and the other's argument uh, so that you could state the other's concern and argument so well that the other would say, that's it. And then you could say, well, here are my concerns, and can we, can we find language that, that uh, makes peace, that reconciles our, our legitimate concerns? And if not, can we show, persuade the other why uh, something's off base with their argument or something's not legitimate about their concern? Right, right. And and I think that, the well, the, this is a long-term project, but if you finally get to an impasse, you'll at least have earned the impasse properly. And then you can look at other strategies of, you know, saying we're like, uh, you know, uh, Baptists and Lutherans are never going to agree on infant baptism because it's it's intrinsic to our self-definition. Def- but how can we live together and grant each other true Christianity while having this very deep and, and unresolvable debate between us? You know, George Lindbeck used to call that achieving disagreement, that, that genuine disagreement is an achievement <laughs> rather yeah. than the insults and invective that Gregory was rejecting. So, well, in that spirit, Sarah, segue, why don't you tell us what the controversies of the age were when uh, Gregory of Nazianzus entered world history? Okay. Well, there are, let's say, three rival parties who are fighting it out, duking it out for Trinitarian or not ascendancy. So we first have the semi-Arians. We mentioned that the emperor um, was of this party, Homoousian. So uh, just to remind you folks out there, Homoousias is the the uh, the winning word approved by Emperor Constantine uh, of the same substance. So the father and the son are made of the same substance. The semi-Arians said, no, they're made of similar substance that's homoousian. Homoios in Greek means similar rather than same. So the son is simply like the father. And this was actually a change in imperial ecclesiastical policy. Constantine had promoted homoousius, but in 359, under the semi-Aryan emperor, it became homoousias. And then we have, of course, the, the party of the Council of Nicaea. This is, of course, after, you know, they're supporting the, in the past, Council of Nicaea, which taught homo homoousias, they're the homoousians, and they're like, no, the son and the father are of identical substance, same identical substance. Um, The problem with this is, well, there isn't so much a problem as maybe a tendency is that if you assert too heavily the identity of son and father and substance, at some point you begin to wonder, is there any difference of any kind within them? How would you articulate that? Is articulating the difference giving into the semi-Aryans? And you can end up um, inadvertently having like a, a divine substance that takes on the different masks or roles of father than son and maybe later spirit. And that becomes defined as modalism, which is, you know, God, God pops up in a different mask depending on what he needs to do. 
So then Basil the Great and his his uh, cohort, they are also totally loyal to the Council of Nicaea, but they see the problem with overstating the identity of father and son to the point that their difference is lost. So what they want to do is figure out how to say that the son is truly divine, 100% divine to the same extent that the father is. They are the same substance. However, they are nevertheless different. And this is different. And this is where we get towards the hypostasis language, that they are two persons who are of the same substance or nature. So how do you do that? That is basically the Cappadocian challenge. How do you articulate the identity in substance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and at the same time articulate and defend the difference of them from one another as persons? Very good, Sarah. The uh, The problem, though, with the Nicene homoousius was a little bit more graver than uh, I think what you made out, because within two years of the Council of Nicaea in 325, um, uh, there was almost like a like a shock effect. What did we do? We abolished <laughs> the difference between the son and the father. We said they're simply the same thing, and if they're the same thing, what's the difference? And that was there was such a reaction against that that within two years, uh, Arius, the the arch heretic Arius, was reinstated. He was his, he was undefrocked and reinstalled in power. And the champion of the homoousius, Athanasius, whom we had a podcast podcast about some years ago, you know, he ended up going into exile six or seven times in the next 50 <laughs> right. years because the Semiarian um, parties uh, uh, were in charge and uh, Athanasius was persecuted. And one of uh, Athanasius's uh, uh, co-workers, uh, allies, a man named Marcellus of Ancyra, actually did take homoousius in a very modalistic direction, um, what's called monarchical modalism, where he said that, you know, God the Father is truly, eternally God, but he fully, the God the Father fully appeared in Jesus, the Son. So, it, in other words, homoousius meant that the divinity that appears in Jesus the Son is is the divinity who is the Father. And so the personal distinction has been abolished and you have a modalistic, um, a monarchical modalism that, that, that develops. So there were, there were serious problems there. So I, I can see then in that light that Arius becomes attractive again because in in a sense, he seems to be closer to the biblical witness because he's insisting that there is a difference between the father and the son. And they realize that they still need the difference between the father and the son. So um, so Arius's deep ontological errors are compensated for by his um, maintaining the difference between the father and the son. Does it go something like that? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, and here, here's another problem of the age that you can explain to us, um, because these issues create these Trinitarian difficulties, confusions, created problems in Christology. And that was represented, again, by another fellow who thought he was a good homoousian uh, Nicene uh, theologian, Apollinarius. Tell us about him. Oh, so Apollinarius is trying to figure out how the sun can be really divine because of all the problems of being human. <laughs> 
And so he 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 goes far enough as to grant something like real human flesh to Jesus. Like they've learned the lesson of docetism. You have to say that that the son was a real human being, but uh, maybe correctly intuiting that that uh, sin originates in in the mind, the soul, and expresses itself through the body. That 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 is where the more fundamental seat of sin is located. He decides to solve the problem by basically um, excising Jesus. Um, truly human mind or soul or consciousness, whatever you want to call it, and replacing it with the divine logos. Um, So that way you can sort of protect the interiority of the son of God. Um, And I I think it was, it was pretty, you can see why he wanted to do this on one level. As I think when we've talked about like the historical Jesus, like trying to imagine what Jesus interior life or consciousness was like, it's just impossible for us to imagine what it could be like without sin, in quotes, right? And so this is how Apollinarius solves the problem, except, of course, that means that Jesus does not actually become truly incarnate, that also part of being truly human, which is having a mind and an interiority and thoughts. He just deletes that and puts the logos in its place. So again, nice intention, wrong solution. Yeah, and it leads then it leads to you know a further difficulty, doesn't it? Because if the logos, the divine logos, takes the place of the human uh, rational soul in their anthropology, rational soul, the mind, uh, then who is it who suffers anguish uh, and who weeps at Lazarus' tomb? Do you attribute this kind of uh, pathetic? Uh, experience to the divine logos you either do that or you say no the logos is play acting and so or pretending <laughs> you know, <laughs> right so so the the very desire to assert strongly the divinity of the uh, son who the word the logos who became incarnate uh and uh have that uh, incarnate by taking a body to itself, but not a rational soul, then led to further difficulties. Well, what about the anguish, the sorrow, the weeping, the uh, uh, terror of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross? Does the divine Logos experience that, or was he just pretending? And then, of course, that's, that's just a, um, a rabbit hole of difficulties, isn't it? Right. So this, this what we've discussed so far, brings up to me two larger questions of theological method, which I think are still, still pertinent today. So let me just run them by you, and we can either answer them now or answer them as we go along. The first is that... Theology seems to progress by people screwing up really badly. And, you know, you, you can do it in the in the, the worst possible light by drawing the comparison to how Jesus speaks of Judas, that the Son of Man had to be betray- betrayed, but woe to the man by whom he, ha- he was betrayed. It would have been better for that man never to have been born. And if you think about that logically, it is an impossible conundrum to get yourself out of, right? That there there had to be a Judas. And people ever since have have been deeply uncomfortable with that. And, you know, with good reason. So when you look at like the whole history of the Trinitarian controversies, you know, there are lots of positions and people who held them who are definitively 
excluded from what counts as Trinitarian orthodoxy. At the same time, it is very clear that the only way we got to what we now call Trinitarian orthodoxy was by lots of ventures that failed. And, you know, like in in real science, um, hypothesis and testing-driven science of the modern era, the, you know, the way you get there is by saying, well, let's see if this works, and then finding out if it doesn't. And then a good scientist lets go instead of hanging on to the failed experiment or the failed theory, more likely. And it seems like something akin to that is happening here. There needed to be a lot of false steps in order to work out all of the implications to get towards something that would actually hold together and sustain the church for the long haul. So that's my first observation. I think that's great, sir. In fact, I, I, I use something like that as a pedagogy uh, many, many years ago when I was teaching in Slovakia, and I was trying to uh, uh, convince my skeptical students that studying this material was important. Uh, and so what I would do is I would come to class and tell them they would have to prepare, but I would tell them, today I'm going to be Arius. Today I'm going to be Apollinarius. <laughs> Today nice. I'm going to be Marcion, <laughs> you know, and so I would play the heretics, and I and I said I'll I'll give a reward to whoever can refute me, <laughs> and it was a, a great deal of fun. And of course, I think only once in the whole semester did a student actually uh, get the better of me, but that might have been because of uh, my lack of uh, facility in their language. I couldn't think of the right, right way to express myself. <laughs> Maybe what you're saying, Dad, is you're a really good heretic, and that's why they couldn't yes. get the better of you. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I think that to realize that that um, these are these what well, we her, the word heresy. I almost wish we could get rid of it because it has so many bad connotations. But what it, the word literally means is deviations. Uh, that that's literally what the Greek word that comes into English as heresy means, to deviate. And the basic metaphor here goes back to St. Paul in Galatians, walking true to the gospel, walking and talking true to the gospel. So if you're walking and talking true to the gospel, you're on the path of orthodoxy. If you deviate from that path, then that's heresy. And I think that's that's a that's a nice way of thinking about this, rather uh, than being a willful it, evildoer or something. Right. Yes. And uh, often, uh, when you properly teach this material, people can be uh, follow the the church's tradition and at least uh, see how the line, uh, the orthodox line, developed uh, in a compelling way. Uh, not that it's a finished business. If the gospel is still marching through history, so is orthodoxy still the Spirit's work in um, in process. Well, I think what I would say is that this is, I think, an important indicator of the spiritual discipline that goes with the intellectual discipline of theology, which is to say that all of us have our our intuitions and our causes that we are pursuing and committed to. And I, I think on some level, we have to have a, two minds about it. One is pursuing it conscientiously and with all we've got to make the best case for our position, and at the same time, being ready to be wrong and to have 
have our our labors, our dearly held and beloved labors um, offered up to God. And God will say, yes, I needed you to do that, but not the way you thought, perhaps. <laughs> so uh, yeah, right. as, as Apollinarius needed to explore this possibility of logos replaces human mind in order to show that it couldn't be right. I mean, on one level, you'd hate to be a, a Apollinarius and say, really? I gave my whole life to that and it was wrong? And But it was helpful to the church because I was wrong? I mean, that's kind of a bitter pill to swallow, but I think something like that has to be internalized when you when you pursue a cause. And I mean, honestly, we see this in, in every domain of life. Letting go of a pet theory, no matter what field you're in, because it turns out it just doesn't stand up, is very hard. And I think the longer you're committed to it, the harder it becomes to let it go. But uh, I think that's the spiritual humility that has to be brought. Well, I guess I'm saying not just to theology, but to all areas of endeavor. Yeah, and I think that's true in theology. I've often said to be a good theologian, you've got to get your ego out of it. Uh, and that, you know, is something that the Cappadocians in general, part of their general criticism of the Arianism, the heresy of Arianism, was its intellectual arrogance, that they didn't have a proper sense of reverence and reserve when talking about divine mysteries, which is what we're doing here, talking about divine mysteries. I wanted to raise my my other methodological question, which I think will bridge into what we're going to next. Okay, go ahead. Well, so what what you see drives a lot of this uh, 4th and 5th century Christology and Trinitarian theology is that there are certain conceptions of God that are simply taken for granted and not examined. So, for instance, one thing we see the um, Gregory of Nazianzus and the others coping with is an implicit doctrine of divine simplicity, which I know is a great interest of yours. And then especially when it comes on to... Um, uh, the person of Christ and Cyril of Alexandria, particularly in the next century, it's the impassibility of God is the, you know, if you if you get rid of that, just like if you get rid of simplicity, you're just not talking about God anymore. And then the question becomes, to what extent are those faithful representations of the biblical witness to what God is? So I think that's one of the things you see happening here is, is this um, collapse of you know, if the son is divine, he has to be entirely divine the way the father is divine. And then you have a collapse of the one into the other. But that seems to be, as I read through Gregory of Nazianzus, driven by an assumption of divine simplicity that Gregory had to find a way to work the church out of, maybe without directly calling divine simplicity into question, but he needed to articulate a different way of thinking that would overcome that that difficulty. Yeah, I think it's important to get to that. That's that's He does have a different conception of divine simplicity, or in other words, what's the unity of God? And we'll have to talk about that as we go on today. But I think what we can do now, Sarah, is pick up this position of the party of Basil that wanted to make a conceptual distinction between the persons and the the three persons and the one being. And the way, I think, a helpful way to put this into English is that uh, usius, as in homo usius, usius is being, and hypostasis is a concrete way of being. So, the Father is God in the way of being Father. The Son is God in the way of being Son. The Spirit is God in the way of being the Spirit of the aforesaid Father and Son. 
So there are three different ways in which the one being of God is, uh, uh, is articulated and lived. Um, what that means is that there's no such thing as being as such. Uh, being as such is a chimera. Uh, it's a concept we have in order to tell us uh, um, what sort of thing in the world we are talking about, what, what category uh, that we're talking about. But when you turn to God, that idea of categorizing God becomes very difficult or classifying God or having a generic concept of God, as we'll see. And that's why uh, down the road, Gregory of Nazianzus has to speak differently about divine simplicity. Right. So just to give a, a, a an easier to access example. So if I ask you to go out in public and identify human beings, you have no trouble doing that, even if they are uh, white or black or other colored skinned, if they are short or tall, if they are male or female, if they have diff different ethnic backgrounds, you can instantly pick out the human beings in your midst. No problem whatsoever, because you know what they all have in common they're all human. But then if I ask you to point to me humanity or human nature, you can't do it. There is no such thing, hu humanity or human nature, that you can you can isolate from the actual people. So that that's um, kind of what's going on here, just as there is no humanity as such. And yet, of course, there's humanity because you recognize it in all the human beings. What the Cappadocians are trying to figure out how to say is there is no divinity as such. There's no divine substance as such. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are what it is to be God, and you recognize that in them. So, yes. So if the word God in our language stands for the divine nature, and we don't misuse it as if it were a personal name. Um, you know, I know we do this. Oh, my God. You know, and we, <laughs> oh, God, we pray, oh, God. We, we use the word God as a personal name, but this is not faithful to the New Testament. Because whenever the word theos occurs in the New Testament, it's always hotheos kai hopater, the God and the Father. One thought, the God and the Father. It is the God. It is the specific God who is the Father, God the Father. And when theos is used uh, without a definite article in front of it, the God, it is then an adjective which means divine, right? And this is kind of like the, the Hebrew Elohim, which is a very odd linguistic uh, phenomenon because it's a plural form. Uh, Elohim literally means the gods. But the Jews, uh, the Israel uses it always with a singular verb to express the fact of uh, and I think you could almost better translate it as the divine, right? Elohim as the divine. The personal name of God is the, the Tetragrammaton, which we don't pronounce on this show. So what is it, to summarize that, what does that mean? For Gregory of Nazianzus, it is not the case that, quote, God is triune. It is rather the case that the Trinity is God. Not God is triune, but Trinity is God. Why? Because the word God is a title. It's not a personal name. Or it's a concept or a placeholder. 
It stands for, you know, that then which nothing greater can be thought or something like that. <laughs> it stands for, for the divine nature, you know, but the divine nature is an open question. Uh, and we'll see that, that these Christians increasingly recognized that when they say G-O-D as a title, they mean the creator of everything that is not God. I think this is another reason why preachers have such a hard time preaching the Trinity on most famously or infamously on Trinity Sunday, but in general, because we still instinctively go from God is triune. Like we start with God and then after the fact, we have to explain how God can possibly be triune. When in fact, the the better both um, Cappadocian and biblical account is to say the Trinity and there, and then from there is God. And I think that makes a huge difference to how you preach. Sure it does, because then you're being biblical. Jesus and the God of Israel, whom he addressed as Abba Father, and their spirit is the one true God. That's what the gospel requires us to say and to think that out. So for Gregory, then, uh, this different way of thinking about the unity of God, not using the title God as a personal name, um, or something like that. Um, the, for, for Gregory, the unity of the three comes from the Father, who generates the Son, on whom he breathes his Spirit, eternally and therefore also in time in the coming to us in the Gospel. The Father who generates the Son, on whom he breathes his Spirit. There's a story there, a plot, uh, in Gregory's language, it's uh, a taxis, or order, or sequence uh, here. So what you have here is the idea that in God's divine time of eternity, there is a kind of uh, um, divine motion uh, that can be plotted, can be mapped. The Father generates the Son on whom he breathes his Spirit. You can add to that, so that in the Spirit the Son adores the Father to uh, return the glory, right? Mm -hmm. So so two, two things arise from me out of that. The first is that that means that having identical substance does not mean being interchangeable. Because for Gregory and the other Cappadocians, as you said, the Father is the font of divinity. So even though they are coterminous, right? There's no there's no Father without Son and Spirit. Nevertheless, it's still possible to say that the Father is the source by begetting the Son and from whom the Spirit proceeds in a way that cannot be, you know, mixed around. The spirit is not the source of divinity and the son does not, could not beget one of the other two. It simply doesn't work that way. So that's already interesting because it's, it's, again, I think when we think about three persons who are all equally divine, the instinct is to say, you know, one plus one plus one equals one, right? So that they're the one and the one and the one are always the same, but there isn't, there's, there's difference on the inside. Right. That's, that's what makes them personally different. That's why they're personally different, right? And that's why in, in the ancient Eastern Church, patropassionism was a deviation. It was not the Father who became incarnate. It was the Father's Son, fittingly and exclusively, who became incarnate. And so if you were a modalist and were saying, well, no, the Father himself suffered 
because that was really his own being that was, or something like that. You know, you, you don't make these distinctions. And you start talking about the suffering of the father, then you obliterate the personal distinctions which are at work in, in the biblical economy of salvation. Right. I just want to say, I think modern defenders of patripassionism misunderstand the problem. And they think that by promoting patripassionism, they're saying that the father actually cares that his son died on the cross rather than being cold and indifferent. That is not the issue at stake. The state, What's at stake is whether the, the being of the father suffered death the way the being of the son did. Right. And it's a difficult enough to wrap our minds around the death of the second person of the Trinity without dragging the spirit and the father down there into the tomb. Okay. Right. Okay. But I just want to, so this is the other, but this is like the larger methodological thing that's behind all this Trinitarian theology, which is saying that there has to be a meaningful correlation between what we call the economy of the Trinity, which is what we see happening in the New Testament, the incarnate Jesus and the spirit that comes upon him and the father whom he addresses and who in turn, you know, speaks blessing over him at his baptism and transfiguration, right? Those there is a there is a necessary connection between those three actors or agents and the eternal nature of God so that there is some kind of mirroring or some necessary mirroring of a relationships of the three in the economy and sometimes called the imminent trinity the trinity in and of itself and so i think i would like to hear you talk about what legitimates that leap because i there's a even today there are people who are very uncomfortable um, correlating the two. And yet, uh, I think we also can implicitly feel that if there's no connection between the economic appearance of the three and their eternal being, then somehow the whole thing is play acting, not just uh, the logos play acting at sorrow. Right. Well, at the heart of the gospel is not simply a revelation in the sense of a disclosure or something like that, of uh, con conveying information about God. At the heart of the gospel is a divine deed of self-gifting, a self-donation of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so that's not simply, oh, there's a God who sends and there's a son who was sent. There's a God who gives and there's a God who was given. That's not just information, though it is important information to articulate the, the, the being of God, right? Uh, but what's at stake here is an event, uh, the actual deed, the divine deed that saves God's own self-giving. As Luther puts it in the Catechism, here, above all temporal gifts, God has given us his very self, God's divine self-giving. And so if you're going to say the gospel, you've got to be able to say that God can give himself to lost and dying people, human creatures, uh, without losing himself, but actually expressing himself truly. And that's the heart of the matter, is this appearance of a divine self-donation true? Is it true to God's divine reality, or is it play-acting? Is it just an appearance, or is it just the conveying of some kind of information that doesn't really depend on it being a dramatic deed that saves. So why we have to make the um, 
inference from the economic trinity, this is what we see happening in the gospel narrative, to the eternal and imminent trinity is simply the principle that God is truthful in his self-donation and self-revelation. Okay, great. I'm sold. Carry on. (laughs) Okay, so basically then to summarize, Gregory articulates a new awareness of God uh, as three hypostases in our language persons or agent patients. Three, uh, three irreducibly individual, yet inseparably related poles of divine being, who form together precisely in their relatedness the single ineffable ontologically foundational substance that Christians adore as ultimate and immediate reality. That's in the words of a scholar named Daly. Um, so, one of the wonders here is that the ultimate reality of God is, in my paraphrase, as you know, beloved community. And I build that on the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, that there was a love uh, between Jesus and his Father and the Spirit from, from endless ages, which has now reached out in the gospel to include human creatures in the dynamism of its tripersonal love so that we are united by the Spirit with the Son to the glory of God the Father now and forever. Uh, And there you see again how directly this understanding of the Trinity relates to the gospel message. Right. So like you said, it's not just a, a factual revelation of some interesting data that we can add to what we observe in the natural world, but there is uh, the, there in, intrinsic truth in the gospel story about the God who is the source of the gospel story. Here, I, I just wanted to read um, in that respect from Oration 31. This is called the Oration on the Holy Spirit. I think this is really helpful. Um, Gregory writes, We say there is no deficiency. God lacks nothing. It is their difference in, so to say, manifestation or mutual relationship, which has caused the difference in names. The son does not fall short in some particular of being father. Sonship is no defect, yet that does not mean he is father. By the same token, the father would fall short of being son. The father is not son. No, the language here gives no grounds for any deficiency, for any subordination in being. So I think that's really nice because what he says there is that the, the difference between them is not a matter of inadequate substance. As he says, the difference between them is a relational difference. And I think, again, because we're so likely to think in functionalist terms or substantial terms, what you see the Cappadocians and Gregory especially bringing forward is this relational reality, that is the source of difference. And that, of course, as you said, connects so much better to the gospel story and so much better to the goal of salvation as beloved community. Yeah, just you can do a simple little exercise. Take take a divine, traditional divine attribute, one that everybody um, up until recently would, would, would acknowledge uh, uh, almightiness, uh, omnipotence. So God the Father is almighty, omnipotent, in the way of being father or source. That is why this person in particular uh, is the one who is, uh, to whom it is attributed the creation of heaven and earth. The Son is omnipotent, but in the way of being Son. 
which is powerful enough to be weak, powerful enough to be humble and obedient, powerful enough to uh, submit to death in the grave in the trust that the Almighty Heavenly Father will keep his promise of resurrection and so forth. And the Spirit is omnipotent, but in the way of being uh, the Spirit of the Father and the Son. So creative, but also patient uh, in dealing with uh, the renovation of human beings upon whom the Spirit pours himself, so forth. You can go through any divine attribute with a little exercise like that. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then again, it doesn't become abstractions like we talked about divinity or humanity being abstractions, but they are concretions in actual lived history of what omnipotence actually looks like or omniscience or whatever. Right. You know, and sometimes, you know, too, I don't want to get too down in the weeds here because these are matters that have to be studied in a book rather than briefly related in a podcast. Uh, but uh, certainly Gregory of Nazianzus drew upon the great uh, contribution of origin of Alexandria and argued that the generation of the son by the father was ineffable and that we should not think of it in along any animal or human analogies. He, he spends quite a lot of time in, in the orations berating people for their stupid mundanity and just taking the word begotten and therefore thinking of, you know, horses and, and sheep and cows making little horses and sheep and cows, right? Or people. Right. Uh, so the point of the arg- argument that the generation is ineffable um, that is to say, we have to take it in a divine way, just like suffering. We, when, when we say that God the Son suffers, right, we, we must not take this in a pathetic uh, way that we embodied beings suffer uh, against our will, pain that hurts us and disables us, right? Uh, divine suffering uh, is divine. It is the suffering of voluntary love that is powerful enough to identify with uh, us hurting creatures and dying creatures to uh, embrace us and to heal us. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's the suffering of compassion, the suffering of love, the suffering of patience, and so forth. So these are divine ways to suffer, not pathetic ways. Uh, ineffable uh, um, is the way Gregory would want to put this. Yeah, I I would imagine Cyril of Alexandria must have been very much drawing on Gregory when he develops his further ideas of passable impassibility and impassable passability in the in the next century. Right, because you know, in in a way, this takes a lot of further theological work. But you have to you finally come down to these paradoxes of impassable passability or something like that, right? But I think often. The Cappadocians and even Gregory are accused of tritheism, that they make the distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so strongly that it almost seems like they're talking about three gods, you know, who had to have a, a business meeting to decide on an, <laughs> with an agenda and decide what they were going to do or something. All right, son, you're the one who's going to die, not me. <laughs> right, something like that, you know. Um but I think it's important to listen to how Gregory refutes the charge of tritheism. 
He says, I'm quoting now, our argument should not lump three together into one individual hypostasis for fear of polytheism, and so leave us with mere names, as we suppose Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same thing, as if we were just as ready to define all of them as one as we are to think of each of them as nothing. For they would escape from being what they are if they were to change and be transformed into each other. Nor should our argument divide them into three substances. That's the tritheism charge. Either substances foreign to each other and wholly dissimilar, as that doctrine so aptly called Arian madness would have it, or substances without origin or order which are, so to speak, gods in rivalry. Now notice there again, there's the key concept, without origin or order. It is origin and order for Gregory, which unifies the three hypostases persons, so that they do constitute the one God. The Father, therefore, is, in the traditional expression, the fountain of the deity. Uh, the Father is the fountain of the deity. So what is deity? This single being, this simple nature, this unified existence, is so not as in a generic sense, nor as a universal class to which these individuals belong. Now notice there what Gregory's denying. He's denying that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like Peter, Paul, and James, three individuals in the category humanity, so that we have a generic idea of deity like a generic idea of humanity, and then put uh, put Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into this category as three examples of it. Rather, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist as a relationship of origin and issuance, of independence and dependence, contained in the Father's gift of what he primordially is in begatting the Son and breathing the Spirit. Order and uh, origin, order of origin from the Father, the unity of the three is the Father. So the Father cannot be the Father he is without the Son and the Spirit and vice versa. So I think to, to put it another way, the only way you can get tritheism out of trinitarianism is by assuming you already know what divinity is and you have turned it into an actual thing like he says here the a universal class or generic sense and then saying well there are three different instances therefore they must be three different things in this already determined universal class of divinity so again it's the problem of saying god is triune when you should be saying the trinity is god and then when you say that reversal, Sarah, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one true God, you're also treating the concept God with reverence, with a sense that this is a reality that infinitely transcends our comprehension. And that's how Gregory of Nazianzus actually uses the traditional philosophical concept of simplicity. In fact, Gregory denies that simplicity uh, is a metaphysical insight into the divine nature. 
something like indivisibility, non-composite, or something like that. Uh, in Gregory, simplicity rather stands for boundlessness, for infinity. Now, these are alpha privatives. These are negative right, concepts. Right. It's an apophatic concept that concerns God in himself, God in his deity, rather, would be a better way of putting it. So it's like Lindbeck talking about this is a, a matter of the grammatical discipline of our spiritual and intellectual talk about God rather than a substantial assertion about the nature of God. Precisely. It's a rule for theological speech, not a metaphysical insight. When you say that the deity is infinite, Gregory of Nyssa had the famous uh, metaphor that uh, eternal life is like swimming into an endless ocean, that never in all eternity will a creature ever comprehend the being of God because it is boundless. It is infinite, right? Uh, uh, and so, so that is kind of like a limit on what theology can say. Uh, theology cannot deliver a positive statement about the infinite being of God, the boundless being of God. It's an apophatic concept. and uh, But Gregory then, having said that, immediately continues, I don't want to speak about God in himself. I want to speak about what God has done for us. And when I say the word God, I mean the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So he immediately backgrounds the whole notion of simplicity as a rule for reverence. And he then he actually goes on to say something I think that's very important. Nature is never a designation for what something is not. Nature is always an affirmation of what something is. An affirmation of what is is not the denial of what is not. So, in other words, we don't get anywhere with negative statements. They're simply <laughs> boundary statements, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. So what's interesting here then is that uh, as the way I, I've come to see it and, and teach it myself is that all of the New Testament witness together is like kind of a pressure that gives rise to the need to articulate these, these uh, let's say, grammatical doctrinal rules about what the placeholder concept God means that we, we have seen in action in the story of the New Testament. So we go from the action on, on the world stage to these um, necessary inferences about what that means the one true God truly is. But it's interesting that Gregory immediately swerves back again and says, we are not going to peer in, and, and peek in these places where even angels fear to tread. We are going to observe the proper reverence and distance on that because we are going to come back to the point that this this um, this thing that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, have done this for our salvation, and he comes right back down to the gospel again. So they're not they're not in competition with each other, but they are also not licensed to go um, speculating in places we are are not welcome to speculate. Absolutely, the 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 rule version of divine simplicity that Gregory develops, with the statement that it simply points to the infinity of God, the boundlessness of God, is a is the equivalent of the first table of the Decalogue, the negative prohibitions, don't take the Lord's name in vain, don't make a graven image, but rather honor the Sabbath day 
and keep it holy, you know, um, because God alone is our God and we should have no other gods before him. And that means revering him as the creator of all that is not God, respecting that as a boundary that our minds can, will never, not in all eternity, uh, transcend or comprehend. So what are some of the gospel payoffs uh, of uh, this kind of Trinitarian theology of Gregory of Nazianzus? I, I, can think, I think I can summarize some things here pretty quickly. Uh, first of all, it backs up the uh, Christological uh, saving work uh, that we're familiar with from Luther as the joyful exchange. Uh, this was the, uh, the uh, it's called in Latin, commercium admirabile, the a remarkable transaction. Uh, and because here you can actually account for the divine humility of the Son of God as an expression of divine power, the power of compassion to suffer in order to save. And this is how Gregory puts that, something like that. The fleshless one is made flesh, the word becomes material, the in invisible is seen, the intangible is touched, the timeless has a beginning, the Son of God becomes Son of Man, he, he who is rich is a beggar, for he goes begging in my flesh that I might become rich with his Godhead. He who is full has emptied himself, for he emptied himself of his own glory for a while, that I might have a share of his fullness, so forth. And then he says, this is more divine than anything else. To those who have any sense, this is the loftiest display of divine power at all the Christological joyful exchange. The one that is above us has given in exchange for everything uh, that is ours. And I, I just want to observe briefly that in both Gregory and Luther, this joyful exchange depiction of salvation is really actually joyful. I mean, it's still, it's so common to have such a, a grim depiction of like, God hates the sight of you, so he killed his son. And now when he looks at you, he just envisages his son's face instead. And therefore, he's willing to put up with you in heaven. I mean, it's just so, so dark and ugly. <laughs> and and right. Gregory is just alive with joy and delight over over the overflowing generosity of the the voluntary humiliation of the son out of love for the lost people. Yeah, and then, you know, it also then also helps us think about the first article of the creed, uh, God the Father's um, gift of creation. Uh, and Gregory is very strong on the idea of creation out of nothing that uh, there was absolutely nothing that necessitated God to create, and there's nothing uh, that stands in the way of God creating. Uh, there's nothing there, there, until God creates. Uh, and Gregory thinks that this is simply a natural expression of God the Father's benevolence. It was not enough for goodness to be set in motion simply by contemplating itself. I'm quoting, but the good needed to be poured out to undertake a journey that there might be more beings to receive its benefits. For this, after all, is the height of goodness, bringing into existence something wholly other. And that's a, I mean, that, that's a wonderful way of thinking about creation as a pure gift of grace um, from the um, 
the divine abundance of the Father, of the Son, and the Spirit. Yeah, generosity rather than necessity. Right, generosity, right. And that means that the creature's life is becoming, not being. Remember that old Luther quote from his early years, this life is becoming, not being, labor, not rest, etc., right? Uh, Gregory says something like this, Scripture does not wish you to remain always as you are, but to be constantly in motion, beneficially in motion, even a new creation. If you are a sinner, turning toward the good, and if you are upright, holding on to your course. So uh, life is labor, not rest, becoming, not being. Well, and, and that means development a, is not is not an, an error or sin in and of itself. It is it is a, like it's okay to start out as a baby and not yet be an adult. That's fine. <laughs> the point is is moving in the right direction, not already being where you ought to be. And if Gregory of Nyssa's right, heaven, eternity, is swimming in an endless ocean. So that you're never gonna <laughs> you're you're gonna be swimming uh, in the infinite being of God, and that you'll never come to rest. <laughs> It'll be eternal growth or something like that. Um, and just the last thought, then what kind of backward reflection on um, the nature of sin does Gregory's theology um, provide? Now, if, if, if generosity is the motive of God's creating, and if divine humility um, that counted not equality with God a thing to be snatched, but rather emptied itself for our sakes and so forth in God the Son— uh, the origin of sin, um, Gregory says, is that certain angels could not bear the lower creatures should share in higher blessings. They were upset when they learned that the lowly earthlings would be God's covenant partner, and they set about to undo God's counsel. Um, and this is how uh, Gregory explains his thought. We were made to praise and glorify our Creator by becoming imitators of God's generosity, but having fallen into sinful passions. We have set up gods as advocates for these sinful passions, so that sin might not go unpunished, but might be thought divine, since it takes its refuge in precisely this kind of excuse, namely the gods that it worships. Now, Sarah, that is Ludwig Feuerbach about 15 <laughs> centuries ahead of time, right? <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. It makes also a huge difference if the God who is telling the angry angels, well, if it's a God saying to the angry angels, stay in your lane, I've put you in this rank, and that's from a God who is way up on top and is totally secure. It's a very different message coming from a God who is willing to take on human flesh and die and suffer and be obedient and humble, saying to those same angels, Accept what has been given to you. Accept the generosity to someone else. You are not without your own gifts. What a difference that makes in kind of the moral reading of the nature of God and therefore of the nature of, of sin, whether it is angelic or human. Of course, and that's exactly why most of the angels are good angels. <laughs> and only the <laughs> fallen angels have succumbed to envy. Yeah, yeah right. And okay. of course, the serpent's temptation in the, uh, the garden story of Eve, Garden of Eden, is precisely the false promise of envy. You shall be as God, knowing good and evil. 
right? That, that envy is the root, the root motive of sin. Um, so wrapping this up, of course, we should have said at the beginning more clearly that Gregory of Nazianzus is the kind of uh, culminating voice in the Eastern development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and this approach to the Trinity that, that he argues um, is one, I speaking for myself, that I find particularly illuminating and very helpful, particularly for us Westerners. And I wanted to conclude today with a quotation from an Orthodox theologian that we both know, a friend of ours named John Breck. And it's an article from an article called The Face of the Spirit, oh, from 30 years ago almost. Uh, and this is, I, 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 let me read this out, Sarah, and get your reaction to it, and then I think we can draw this to a close, because this is kind of a segue to what we're going to be doing next time. Now, in contrast to Greek Orthodox theology, he writes, Latin theology takes a sharply different view of the matter, inasmuch as it holds that nature, or substance, rather than person, is the ontological principle of divine being. This seems to explain how St. Augustine, in his book on the Trinity, can propose psychological analogies between, on the one hand, the human mind, self-knowledge and self-love, and, on the other, the divine paternity, filiation, and spiration proper to the Holy Trinity. If logical priority is accorded to nature over person, then it becomes possible to conceive of the Father as generating the Son as an act of thought, while the Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son as an expression of mutual love between the two. The result, from an Orthodox perspective, is pure subordination. This is particularly clear with regard to the Holy Spirit, who is reduced to a nexus of love, a bridge of love, a chain of love, which is an impersonal and relational rather than a personal uh, image and concept. Of course, Augustine insisted, uh, we know, that the unity of God is to be found in nature or substance rather than in uh, the person of God the Father. However much Augustine might have stressed the unity of the three persons, his chief emphasis was upon divine simplicity, in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are to be distinguished only according to impersonal relationship. End quote. Well, it's a spot-on diagnosis uh, insofar as I see the, the differing trajectory of the Latin West's Trinitarianism over the, the Greek East's. And, you know, I, I one of the things, uh, the, the platitudes, is that the, the Reformation was not about the doctrine of the Trinity, and the tr Trinity wasn't talked about. That at least was taken for granted by all, you know, major parties. But I, I'm not so sure. I mean, it, it certainly wasn't the central topic of debate, but it seems to me that there was a subtle rumbling and, and shifting that took place because as I, I read Luther, there is definitely much more a patristic take on the 
the persons, um, both the unity of the person of Christ and the personal relatedness of Father, Son, and Spirit, which I think is closer to the spirit of of the Greek East than it is to the uh, Tome of Leo trajectory of the Latin West. Does that is that what you think too? Yeah, I do basically think that way. Um, I don't think Luther could jump out of his historical skin. I mean, he was a pupil of Augustine's theological writings. And um, he says some daring stuff about the Trinity early in his career that is along these lines that you just articulated. But by the end of his career, you know, he's basically retreating to the Latin position, saying that it's a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery, three and one, one and three. And uh, we, we really can't say anything about it, but though we have to say something. So that's what we say. And just move on to other topics, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I, I yeah. think his earlier instincts were were right then, and I think how how closely tied you see in someone like Gregory this personal person first understanding of the Trinity with the joyful exchange and the intention of of quote unquote God to save humanity shows that there there is a better affinity if you have a joyful. Salva- joyful exchange-oriented salvation that the this uh, Cappadocian approach to the Trinity is a much better fit. Yeah, and Luther loved the expression in Latin, esse deum dare, to be God is to give. And so this whole motif of the triune fullness of God as a uh, eternal uh, community of love, superabundant in love, uh, generously giving of itself to create a world other than itself and to bring it to redemption and fulfillment, right? Uh, where what emerges as the malaise and the disease is the sin that originates in envy. I mean, I think these are just extraordinarily helpful and powerful ideas for us in the West where the doctrine of the Trinity has been paralyzed or immobilized and basically become non-functional. Hmm. All right. Well, and next time on the show, we're going to examine some of the uh, source problems in the Latin Western doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, a couple years ago, we did a sympathetic episode called Poor Anselm, but I think this one's going to be more like, oh, Anselm, and we'll be talking about his monologion. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.